Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. My name is Dave, if you're new to our church, and it is my joy, privilege to be one of the pastors here at Harvest, and I've been working my way through a series on the Gospel of John. This morning, we're going to look at John chapter 8, verses 30 to 36. The title of the message is Free Indeed, Free Indeed, and I want to read that passage for you, and then I'm going to show you a little video that will set up what we're going to talk about this morning, right? John chapter 8, verses 30 to 36. This is the word of God. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I'm going to show you a a little silly video, and uh, it'll set up what I want to open with this morning. So check this out. Not sure why this is not clicking, but uh, would you guys kindly advance the slide for me? There we go. Selfie time. These sorority sisters are apparently too busy taking selfies to watch the big baseball game. Do you have to make faces when you take selfies? Wait, one more now. Oh, there you go. Better angle. Oh, check it. Did that come out okay? That's the best one of the 300 pictures I've taken like, myself like, today. Every girl in the picture is locked into her phone. The sportscasters at the Arizona Diamondbacks game can't believe the Alpha Chi Omega sisters are more interested in selfies than watching the action on the field. Lead off single here in the fourth, and nobody noticed. Help us, please. Somebody help us. Yeah. Can we do an intervention? How about if we send Baxter out there and he just collects all the phones? <laughs> Maybe you've seen that video before, um, probably a little more clearly than you just saw it now. That was from an Arizona Diamondbacks game back in 2015, uh, uh, about three years ago. And there were about 23,000 people in attendance at that game. The reason I showed that video, and I have to admit, it's a little bit sexist in its tone, um, bothered me a little bit, but I showed the video for one reason only. 
When you have a crowd that large at anything, even if they are all gathered ostensibly for one and the same purpose, any crowd that large, you're going to have a spectrum of people with respect to commitment and engagement. So there will be some people in the Diamondback Stadium that day who could tell you the player stats and the contract terms for every player on the field. They could tell you how many years he's going to get paid, how many millions of dollars, what his ERA is, what his batting average is. And then there are those girls who, if the whole stadium erupted in cheering, they'd look up from their phones and cheer along but have no clue which side did what. In fact, I've, I've seen examples of people who cheer for the opposite team because they're just not paying attention and they're embarrassed when they cheer for the opponents. I, I really believe that whenever you have a large crowd or a large movement, a large response to anything, you're going to see a range of different places where people fall. Some will be totally engaged and get it. They will really be there for that thing. And others will be there for the atmosphere, for the friends, for the churros, but clearly not for the main attraction. You know, when Jesus began to preach and do miracles, when he started his earthly ministry around the age of 30, early on, his ministry was met with a tremendous outpouring of positive response. In fact, whenever he preached, it seemed like people in droves would respond to him, would want to place their faith in him and make him their leader. And in fact, it happened so much, he began to run away from these crowds. It's the kind of response every ministry leader dreams about today. And the surprising thing about it is, when Jesus preached, he didn't preach messages that would be considered seeker-friendly today. He didn't preach messages about how he intends to make life better on every front for everyone who hears. He began with things like, well, like this. Look at verses 23 to 24. He said to them, you are from below and I am from above. And he wasn't just talking about geographic region of the country. You know what he's talking about. I'm from up there. You're from down here. And you are of this world and I am not of this world. I just want you to imagine I started saying stuff like this. You're like, what? I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. There are churches in America where you couldn't get away with preaching a message like that because it would scare people off. Jesus preached that way, and thousands turned to him for some reason. In fact, As we open our passage this morning, it says, as he was teaching these things in the temple courts, many believed in him. Or it says, they placed their faith in him. This is exactly the kind of response most ministry leaders today pray for. And when Jesus got it, he had this discernment that even though he sees lots of people drawn to him, attracted to him, he understood that not everybody who was responding to him was responding in the truth. In fact, he says, he says that some people are not yet truly his disciples. Even though they believed in him, they were not yet truly his disciples. You might argue, well, of course they weren't his disciples yet. They just 
got converted, how could they be disciples? And that's because the way we use the word disciple, it often suggests that there is this progression of stages in the Christian life. You start from being an unbeliever, and then you become a convert, and then when you finally get serious, you become a disciple. That's the way Bruce Lee said it, my disciple, right? That's when you're like just, you don't even know martial arts, then you're interested and you decide I want to join a gym, and then, oh, you study, and you're getting serious, and you're getting better, and you're moving up the belts, the disciple track. So that's the idea, that's the way we, and the truth is, I think the way we use those terms in the church, it gives that impression. That disciple is somehow the graduate school of being a Christian. When you finally stop playing games and decide to get serious, you will be a disciple. The problem is that Jesus and the writers of the New Testament never used the term that way. They never used the word disciple as though it were some advanced stage in the Christian journey. For them, to be a disciple and to be a Christian were synonymous That at the moment of your conversion, when you decide to see in Jesus of Nazareth your personal Savior, you become and are a disciple when you place your faith fully in Jesus. And so he understood that while many people were drawn to him, attracted to him, were admirers of him, and saw in him a clear and uh, indisputable power, not all fully responded to or received the truth of who he was claiming to be, and therefore not all fully received the freedom he was offering. I think it should be somewhat jarring to us that Jesus acknowledges it's possible to be favorable towards him, to admire him, to even respond to the things he's saying, and yet somehow in the end not be a true disciple. And it's not like he's saying this is a confusing mystery, see if you could figure it out. He's saying it's actually not that difficult to decipher, but if you get it wrong, the consequences are pretty big for believing you have a certain state of being and finding out in the end that you don't. Pastor John Piper, in one of his sermons on this text, actually gives the illustration of a skydiver who is enjoying free fall, is totally happy, but does not know that the parachute he believes will save him was poorly packed and not working. And he pulls the ripcord and nothing happens. The consequences of placing your security in something that doesn't merit it are huge. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's not making accusations. He's making an invitation. He's saying there is a way to be a disciple and a way to not be a disciple. And I want you to find the path that leads to really being a follower of Jesus, a born-again, saved human being. Verse 32 contains probably one of the most often quoted passages or phrases in all of Scripture. How many of you guys have quoted this passage in some context outside of the church before? Hey, you'll know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And I think there's a general sense in which that phrase is always true. That if you're living under deception or misinformation or lies or just ignorance, then knowing something, finding out the truth is a kind of liberation, right? Like... 
to find out that you had a, a little booger fluttering in your nostril or spinach on your teeth or that uh, your ticket was not for the right day. I remember going to a show and presenting my ticket and like, sir, that was for tomorrow's show. You can't come in. And just having the wrong information. So there's a general sense in which getting the truth is always liberating. But that's not really what Jesus had in mind when he first spoke these words. He wasn't saying in a general sense, anytime there's ignorance or deceit or misinformation, the truth will liberate you. This is not a social or intellectual or political statement. So it begs the question, what is it that we need to be set free from? What is it that we need to be set free from? Is it the prejudice that comes out of ignorance? Is it the self-centeredness, the hatred, the whatever, just the darkness of not knowing? What is it that Jesus is saying the truth will set you free from? And while the general sense of that word, the truth will set you free, does matter, he's very specifically saying one thing here. And the thing we need to be set free from is revealed to us in verse 34. He says that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The thing we need to be set free from is not ignorance, but it's bondage. A slave is somebody who is not free. He may have the freedom in his own mind, in his own spirit, but someone else has imposed upon him some power which prevents him from determining his own destiny. He's not free. It's one of the hardest things about slavery. Slavery was hard, according to the testimony of slaves, the hardest part was not just the hard work, but the completely dehumanizing lack of choice that I can't change my destiny no matter what. Someone else decides it for me. I don't feel I have power, autonomy, control over myself. What Jesus says is that is what sin does to the human being. In a very real way, sin, if you practice it, and that's all of us, just just making sure, I want to make sure I'm preaching the right, is there anyone here who has not practiced sin? No, I'm practicing every day, I'm getting better at it too. (laughs) Is there anyone here who does not practice sin? Of course there isn't. He's making a universal statement. This applies to all of us. And he's saying anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Or another way of saying it is under the bondage to the power of sin. So he's not speaking of sin and its bondage in terms of a deed or an addiction. He's not saying everyone who sins is hopelessly addicted to that sin. Here's what he's saying. He's speaking of sin as a kind of power that is deep within us and exercises a power over us which we feel powerless to fight at times. I think sin enslaves us in two ways, okay? And the Bible describes this. The first way sin enslaves us is it enslaves us in a bondage of desire. It enslaves us internally. We sin not because we don't know the difference between right and wrong, but we sin because, God help us, We know what is wrong, but we really like it. I mean, am I the only one who finds sin attractive? Please don't make me feel like that. (laughs) The things I'm not supposed to do, and let's start with something as mundane as food. And yes, it's not a moral issue, but there are certain foods that I know will destroy me. Loaded with refined sugar, which is like poison, basically. We're learning 
Refined sugar is basically like nicotine or some other harmful substance. It will kill you slowly over time. And yet, the things that I want to eat are all loaded with bad stuff. You know, I go through these periods in my life where for long seasons, sometimes three, four years, I make consistently good, healthy eating choices. And then I pass through these weird little phases, these pockets where I can't bring myself to order a salad. And I'm in one of those phases right now. I don't know if what you're seeing reveals it, but lately, man, I can't go into a... I see the salad and go, I would like the pizza and fries, please. And I'm doing that all the time. And it's like my, my mind, my brain is telling me, man, you haven't been feeling very energetic lately. Put some good stuff in your body. And then my mouth betrays me. It stabs my mind in the back. And I find myself saying words like cheeseburger, fries, brownies, ice cream. I'm buying haagen ice cream bars in boxes of 18 <laughs> at Costco. Why Costco? You have to sell so many in one box. And it has become a thing now. After every dinner, I have to sit down and eat my haagen bar. Why am I saying all this? Because there is a power that knowing something is harmful or even morally wicked does not preclude my attraction to it. And God help me, the truth of the matter is I am so attracted to things which I know for a fact are reprehensible because of what they do and because of what they are. I love so many of those things. And I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to not like these things, and I like them. Please, God, help me. I like them. If I were left alone, I think I could play video games for 48 straight hours without using the bathroom. Thank God I don't, but I could. It's scary that way. That's the power of a thing that produces compelling desire deep within inside of us. Sin enslaves by producing compelling attraction and desire for something which I know is not right or good for me. And I think the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, he's giving a very rare, he takes a break from teaching theology, and for a little section of that letter to the Romans, he makes this very personal, very transparent and honest confession of his own heart. And listen to the words he writes in Romans 7 verses 14 to 15. And this is the first part of his confession, but listen to how raw and honest it is. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is is with me. For I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Can any of you relate to the Apostle Paul? Yeah, amen. I totally relate to that. And I especially relate to the words, I don't understand myself. Have you ever just said to yourself as you're doing something, what is your problem? Now, honestly, have you ever said that while you're sitting to yourself? Seriously, dude, what is your problem? You're still going to go through with it, but you're saying it the whole time. What is your stinking problem? It's like I have two selves, two me's. 
One side wants to do what is right and good and healthy and beneficial and loving. And the other side wants everything the exact opposite of that. And I can't figure out how both people can live in the same me. And the tension of it grows and grows sometimes, doesn't it? We pass through seasons where we can't even muster enough will to fight against it. We just go, I just want to be this bad guy for a while. I don't even care. You can always tell somebody who's in the throes of that because there's a general apathy. The eyelids reveal it completely. A person who's fighting looks like this. A person who's given up looks like this. That's like 85% of teenagers, right? I mean, I was like that. I remember when I was a teen. My mom would say something to me. I'm like, okay. All right, mom. All right, mom. Okay. There's a point at which you don't even want to nurture that side of you that fights for what is right. And so sin enslaves by working internally on our desires. But Jesus goes on to say that sin enslaves in another way. While the the bondage of desire is an internal thing, there's also an external bondage. And what he says is, and he uses this weird language about slaves and sons. He says, slaves may be in the house all day long, but there's a point in the day in which they got to go. They don't live here. They're not family. And the ones who remain are family. In other words, the only way to have an enduring place in the household of God is to be in right standing with him so that you go from being a slave to a son or daughter. The person who is a slave to sin is not free. And what he's really saying is this. Every one of us yearns for there to be more than this life, for there to be a life beyond this one. That didn't make as much sense to me when I was in my 20s or 30s. Even in my 40s, it felt like that was a distant thing. But I am now more than halfway done with my life's journey. That's a really weird, it's the feeling of when you're two-thirds of the way through a movie you've been waiting five years to see, and you realize it's going to be over soon. And even before the movie's over, even before you finish reading the novel, there's a depression that slowly starts to leak into you, isn't there? Because you're like, oh man, every turn of the page, every second, every frame is nearing the end, and you realize everything ends. Everything ends. I've been organizing pictures on my computer all week to try to make some space on my hard drive. I freed up 100 gigabytes on my hard drive. I just a lot of pictures. And I was going through pictures from 10 years ago, and I was doing the stroll through memory lane, and I realized, dang, I have lived a lot, and all these great stories I've seen, but everything ended. I saw people who were so close to me. We, we were like family, and they're not around anymore. I just realized how that's the nature of this life. And as I think about the nearing, and I don't want to be so morose. I'm not, I hope I'm still around for another at least 25 years, I hope. Maybe more, maybe 40, who knows. Maybe 50. <laughs> but the truth is, I can see the end looming over the horizon. I know it's a reality. And here's how I feel about it, if I'm being honest. It sucks. And what I mean by that is not that I'm afraid about my faith in the life to come. But what I'm trying to express is 
Life on earth is intolerably short. It's too short. It feels as if the years we're given are so small in comparison to the yearning and the longing in our spirits. Like there's more in me than 90 years of this journey can satisfy. C.S. Lewis put it this way. The yearning for more than this world is a kind of proof that we were made for more. The writer of Ecclesiastes says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has planted eternity in the human heart. Meaning that regardless of what we might say verbally, every one of us knows deep inside there has to be more. I need there to be more. This can't be all there is. 90 years of trudging through this mess and then that's over and that's it. And yes, you can say it's a desperate hope. Maybe I need it more than it's really there. Maybe so. But the truth is there is an irrepressible dissatisfaction with how short life is, how imperfect the world is. I know that God made my spirit for more than what I've seen and longer than what I have down here. And every one of us has this irrepressible desire, this yearning for something beyond this life, for there to be more, for there to be stories that don't have to end. For there to be a reality in which goodbyes are done forever. No more pain, no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more death. And the Bible speaks of, God reveals that there is such a reality. You have to accept it on faith whether it's real or not. I can't prove it to you. I know that's what many people want. I can't prove almost anything to people. You can show video today no one believes. You want proof, it's not available to you. I cannot prove it other than, bang, Is it real? (laughs) I I don't know what lies beyond this world. But I know that God has very clearly revealed a picture, a hope, that I just believe truly pulls at the eternity he's deposited in my heart. I know that I want to live forever with him in paradise. That's what I want. I yearn for that to be the truth. The problem is, Because I yearn for it doesn't give me the power to cross over into it by myself. Sincerity of desire is not enough to make that eternity my eternity. And what Jesus says is sin enslaves us externally, not just internally through a bondage of desire, but externally through a bondage of destiny in that we all want to have an eternity that includes being with God, being with our loved ones, living in paradise, free of everything we hated about this world. We yearn for it, but it cannot be ours by right. It is a gift made available only through one bridge, one road. That may seem grotesquely unfair to some, but the fact that that option even exists is a gift that we don't deserve. And what Jesus says is sin is what blocks the path so that unless we deal with that somehow, that yearning and that desire for more, for the beyond, will not be a reality. We are enslaved to one destiny unless we are set free to the other. What is this truth that will set us free from that? What is the truth that sets us free from the internal bondage of desire and the external bondage of destiny? 
How do we truly become free of the slavery which sin has produced in our lives? And let's face it, we don't need anyone else telling us that we have an issue with sin. You you know, maybe this is true for you. I know it's true for me. After the fleeting momentary pleasure of sin, it's almost immediately followed by this horrible emptiness and feelings of self-hatred, shame, and regret. I know that sin is not the way I was supposed to live. When I was younger, I used to get drunk a lot. And there's this weird feeling of euphoria initially, and then there's a lot of horrible feeling afterwards. This feeling that I am enslaved to a thing, and the aftermath of that is nothing I would wish upon myself or anyone else. And yet, knowing that lesson over and over, I still could not help choosing it. I wanted to be delivered from it. I didn't, I couldn't say on a mountaintop, I am proud of this powerless cycle of self-destruction. I love it. I loved it for like a second when I hated life so much I needed to, to erase something. Or I just, I loved the moment so much I didn't want to think about the future. But the truth is I couldn't argue that I was proud of, satisfied with the life sin was producing. I felt, in fact, that I was in bondage. I didn't feel free to choose better. It was just what I felt over and over and over again. I also came to realize at one point in my life that because of that bondage of sin, I was blocked from access to God in a way I didn't want to be. So Jesus holds out this powerful promise in verse 32. You will know the truth And the truth will set you free. And what is it that we're supposed to believe? He says, what you're supposed to believe to be set free is that I am he. Stay with me for a minute because those are pretty powerful words. When he says the truth that you're supposed to believe is that I am he, those words I am he are the Greek words ego eimi, which may not mean anything to you if you don't know Old New Testament Greek, but here's what it means. Literally translated, it means I am. And every Jew hearing that knew exactly what he was saying because that's the personal name of God. That's the name that God gave to Moses and to the Jews of Israel is when you think of me, my personal name, not my title, but my name is I am. That is who I am. I don't owe my existence to anyone else. I am God. And what Jesus is saying is the truth that sets us free from the bondage of sin is the confession, the recognition that Jesus is who he claims to be. That because Jesus is God, he has the authority to reverse the bondage of sin. He only. I cannot fight the bondage of desire through discipline, asceticism, accountability. Have you ever been part of an accountability group that just felt like a confession club? Yeah, I did it again. Well, okay. Try not to, all right? Yeah, let's pray for you. And you're like, this is accountability? It feels like you're getting together to talk about how much you messed up. And the other guys go, oh, that sucks. Oh, man. All right. Next week is another week. There's got to be more than that. I cannot fight the bondage of desire through some Bruce Lee kung fu-like self-discipline. I wish I could. I have tried mightily, 
and I can't. I have tried. Have any of you tried to fight sin in your life? Just really hard. And no matter how, and I've, I've gone through seasons where like, oh, I've been clean. I've been free of that besetting sin for like six years, seven years, two months, six hours, whatever. But when I fight on my own strength, it always gives out. I can't pretend that the things that are attractive to me are no longer attractive. So what is the power that will help me deal with this bondage of desire that doesn't live outside? It lives in me. It's in me. And how do I cross the bridge into an eternity that I want when I don't have the keys to get there myself? And Jesus says the only way is to know and to confess and to abide in this truth that I am God and I alone hold the keys. I alone have the power to set you free from the bondage of sin and all its consequences. Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. I'll land this plane soon here. That, that word is singular. He didn't say if you abide in my words, meaning remember everything I ever said and live by them. That's the way the Pharisees tried to receive God's word. They memorized every little word that Jesus or, or that God had spoken through Moses. And they said, I'm going to keep every single one of them. So for them to be faithful, to be religious, to be righteous was to keep track of a thousand little things and constantly monitor yourself. It was exhausting. It was futile. Every time they got commandments 150 through 245 done, the other 150 were violated. They couldn't keep it straight. They tried for a lifetime to put all these rules in place and honor all of them. And what they found was they couldn't do it because the problem was inside of them. Do you remember that that's what Paul said in Romans 7? The problem is not with the law. It's with me. Something's wrong in me. So what Jesus is saying is don't memorize all my words and try to build a life that is perfectly in tune with every word. He's saying, hear my word, the summary, the testimony of what it is I'm saying. You can't separate those two things, the I am and the word. He's saying, listen to who I said I was. Throughout the Gospel of John, he gives seven I am statements. I'm not going to exhaustively talk about them at all. I just want to list them for you because he's saying, this is what you need to know to find salvation, is to know that what I said about myself is true. And there is no other hope to break the bondage of sin and its consequence in your life. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate that leads to salvation. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the vine. The primary word which Jesus speaks in his ministry is I am. It's not about living by a certain moral code or having the right beliefs. Those things do matter, but that's not what saves us. In our passage, Jesus says, abide in my word. Later on in John 15, he would say, abide in me. He's saying the same thing. To abide in his word and to abide in him are the same things. 
what am I trying to say? Here's what I believe Jesus is really saying. Salvation is not a power. Salvation is not a principle. Salvation is not a process. Salvation is a person. The only way to be saved is to know and to trust and abide with, walk with every day. Refresh your trust in the person who saves. There is no path to salvation that does not pass directly through Jesus Christ, the person, the Son of God. There is no other means by which the bondage in our life is broken. You will be forever on this repeated cycle of frustration, of wishing you were a better person and finding out you're not, staring the mirror and realizing the truth of what I really am is right there in front of me every day. And I wish I were better, but I'm just not. I wish I had a different destiny, but I don't think I will. And he says, there's only one way. It's not a power. It's not a principle. It's not a process. The only way out is through the person of Jesus. What he's saying to them and what he's saying to us is it doesn't matter how well you behave. Even if you grew up in the church, even if your mother and father, your grandmother and grandfather, all your uncles and aunties love Jesus, walk faithfully, set a great example, and that's your inheritance, your heritage, even then, even if you know the answer to every Sunday school question, if you could get up here and preach the rest of this sermon faithfully, even if the only way to salvation is by putting your full trust in the person of Jesus Christ. We're not Christians because we finally got our act together. We're not Christians because our journal is more beautiful than someone else's or because our resume is better than someone else's. The only thing that makes us Christian is we finally heard the truth that Jesus was saying, I am He. There's no other way. You trust me, you abide in me, you walk with me, and you will make it across. Many of us who go to this church at some point in our life, many years ago, we received Christ. But at some point along the way, we stopped receiving him each day. For us, our relationship with Christ is a historical reality not a daily reality. And he says, the only way to be truly my disciple is to remain, abide in me. Abide. Don't point to a day at a camp in Deerfield in 1984, Dave. Don't point to that day and say, that's the day everything changed. That's the day it all started. Abide in me. Walk with me. Place your full trust in me. When the power of sin in your heart, the desire for everything wrong keeps growing, turn to me, look in my face, cry out to me. I will replace that dark desire with a different desire. You will not be perfected in this life, but I will change you day by day, hour by hour. I will replace those dark desires with something else, a new appetite. He has the power to do that. But only if we abide with him. Earlier I read the first couple lines of Paul's confession. I want to end 
by reading the rest of that confession, and it is powerful. Throughout this confession, you feel this tightly coiled knot of tension, frustration, futility. It's mounting. Listen to what he says. I have discovered this principle of life. That when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart. But there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Can you relate? Can you relate to that? And as the tension mounts, I'm so grateful for Paul's answer, the hope he has, which is given to us in verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That confession was one of the most starkly honest portrayals the human heart. It was a confession made by a guy who will run laps around me in the spiritual Olympics. And yet he told us that is true. I hate how I'm two people. I wish I was better. But I find every day I'm not. Who will deliver me from myself? Thanks be to God who delivers us through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you've grown up in the church, but this is not your hope and confidence, it must be, it can be, it should be. If you've never placed your trust in Jesus, you got to know that there is no other hope. There isn't another way, a, a back door to the eternity you yearn for, to the aching desire to be different, to be more, to be better, to be new. Those desires and yearnings are an echo of who God made us to be. They drive us to the Savior. So I'm going to encourage you, invite you to go there to Him. So I was writing this sermon this week. I found that God consistently led me to the floor in prayer. Because this is a message that is so familiar, it's almost boring. And yet there is no other hope for us. And I think churches all over our world are filled with people who believe they're on the right side of this and will one day find their shoot was not packed right. I desperately hope, if that is you, that you have heard the gospel this morning and will respond to the Savior. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.